Hi, Greg Perry, the historic preservationist. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 8. Continuing our theme with colonial clocks, clock-making, clock shops, um, let's focus on clock cases in the colonies. In 1656, Christian Huygens, the Dutch mathematician, physicist, and astronomer, invented the first practical pendulum clock. Within a generation, the basic form of the tall case clock, as we know it today, was for the most part established in England and Northern Europe. The pendulum was first adapted to the existing lantern clock, but soon it became apparent that the long, swinging pendulum needed to be encased. Attempts, which were essentially early experiments to utilize a one or one-quarter second pendulum, had been abandoned in favor of the one-second or, quote, royal pendulum length. While month and even year-going clocks were contemplated and constructed, the unwildliness of the weights and the complicated gearing required for the next smaller calendar interval, the week, made them more desirable. With an, with an added day for extra tolerance for winding, the eight-take clock became the standard. One day, actually, which is a 30-hour clock, were also produced in quantity, but were usually relatively quite primitive, made outside of the competitive town centers, very provincial. As this process was occurring in England, the earliest clockmakers who immigrated to America brought the result of this standardization with them. Thus, the stereotypical American tall case clock with form and dimension to allow the swing of the pendulum and the drop of the weights took on the proportions so familiar to many of us. However, the clock case, even from its earliest incarnations, was regarded as more than just a functional enclosure for the clock's movement. It became ornamental, a piece of furniture for the house as well as a conversation piece. A complete clock required a great deal of specialized labor. A furniture maker or joiner usually produced the case, while the clockmaker, sometime, or which was someone also skilled in metalworking, produced the movement. A separate specialist might also engrave the dial. To, to <clears throat> examine just the cost of the case, in about 1740, a square dial case cost about three pounds and an archdial case cost about four pounds, and cases made from wood other than walnut, five pounds. Later in 1786, probably owing to wartime inflation, square dial clocks in at least one account book were six pounds in mahogany and four pounds in walnut, whereas an archdial or specialized moldings could each add a pound or two to the cost. In all the uh, instances just stated, there was an extra charge for glazing. Additionally, a typical eight-day clock movement by itself would have had another five to six pounds. The resulting cost of 10 to 12 pounds for a complete but basic eight-day clock would have equaled roughly two months' pay for the typical 18th century worker. Because of the specialized labor required, and the high cost of brass needed for the movement, a clock was easily the most expensive item in most households, 
with the possible exception of a four-poster bed, which contained a great deal of imported fabric, creating curtains and a top or, or, uh, or roof of the bed. Ownership of such an item, particularly an elaborate one, identified the owner as sophisticated, worldly, and above all, wealthy. The overall form of the case and the various design elements, particularly in England, made their way to America as these shops began to be set up. The earliest forms of clock cases were sarcophagus or tea caddy tops, and these are similar in every way to English examples and are clearly derived from them. This design influence continued for a while, but as time went by, stylistic elements Peculiar and particular regions or city centers began to develop. Thus, even the clocks made as early as 1740, there are design distinctions sufficient to enable one to differentiate between a Newport make case and one from Philadelphia. Compare the illustrations of James Waddy, Newport and Peter Stretch of Philadelphia clocks. In the 17th century, Walnut had largely supplanted oak as the primary wood of choice for English clockmakers. The native-grown American black walnut served the same purpose in the colonies. As time went on, however, clock trade routes with Cuba, Guatemala, and other Caribbean ports provided a a supply of dense, workable mahogany, which gradually became the wood of choice. The change took some time, though, but by around 1740, walnut was used far less than mahogany for colonial furniture, including clock cases. An exception should be noted for the Connecticut River, where the cherry was the primary source for furniture. And indeed, this choice serves as the identifying marker for the idiosyncratic furniture made in this area. The brass style movement continued in use throughout this period well into the 18th century until roughly the end of the Revolutionary War. During this time, composite brass dials with applied spandrels and chapter rings evolved to engrave brass sheet dials and finally to painted dials, which first appeared in the 1780s and became fashionable as early as the 1790s. The the transition to painted dials serves as a convenient point to end our explanation of case styles. The evolution of cases proceeded separately from that of the dials. However, so that early painted dial cases from a particular region have essentially the same characteristics as casing their late brass dial predecessors. Regional design elements, such as the, quote, Roxbury frets, fluted quarter columns, broken arch pediments, and OG bracket feet, among others, are found on both brass and, and, and painted dials alike. Unlike French contemporary makers, who frequently name-stamp much of their furniture, American cabinet makers rarely sign their handicraft. Occasionally, chalk signatures are found in unobtrusive locations. But perhaps, more often, labels were affixed to interiors. Unfortunately, for the historians, as well as for the furniture lover, most of these paper labels have disintegrated over the passage of time. Today, such surviving labels are a great rarity and add considerably to both the value and historical interest of a piece. Thus, for the vast majority of clocks 
our only named historical connection is with the person who we find inscribed on the dial. While casemakers, invariably different artisans, from that most part, remain totally anonymous. In some instances, similarities of construction techniques between a labeled and an unlabeled case can lead to a highly confident attribution. Also, the use of an idiosyncratic design elements, such as the foliate center finials of John Janvier, seen on Duncan Beard cases, can also provide maker's identification. However, these instances are always the exception. The best that we can assume is that the case maker was known to the clockmaker and that their shops were in a relatively close proximity. And from this assumption, we can sometimes infer the identity of the case maker. A few generalizations can be made regarding the period to which certain design elements remained fashionable. But many of the elements, such as the colonnettes, hood door, and the side lights, top treatment, fretwork, and finials evolved over time. Timelines are best approximations, since different interpretations often overlapped and the customer might request earlier style treatments. Overall hood design is just such an example. In, in general, simple flat tops preceded sarcophagus tops. Sarcophagus tops preceded enclosed bonnet tops, and this happened in, particularly in Philadelphia, which in turn preceded the, quote, scroll pediments. Considerably rare, but geographically dispersed examples of Chinese-inspired pagoda top clocks are found from the New York State, Connecticut, and Maryland, among some other colonies. Colonial pagoda top clocks are quite similar to their English counterparts. As a rule, square clock dials are earlier than arch dials. Engaged or an ensuite colonnettes are earlier than freestanding ones. And neo-Gothic spire finials are earlier than the flame finials. A few design elements are essentially present for the entire period of the brass clock era, roughly 1720 through 85. For our examination here, and as, <clears throat> as we will speak in the, in the preceding chapters, one of these is the use of colonnettes. These diminutive columns, usually four, occasionally two, consisting of a base, a shaft, and a capital are found on, arch, on virtually all tall case clock hoods of the period. Another is the almost universal employment of three finials, or two finials and a central cartouche to finish the architecture of the case top. The origins of this particular number, number will perhaps present themselves as we uncover historical and sociological precedents. For this, it is instructive to step back further in time to examine the antecedents to the tall case clock itself. These antecedents derive from two architectural treatments separated by well over a millennium. Many of the architectural components of a clock case, particularly the hood, have their inspiration from ancient Greece and Rome. So the arch is derived from Constantine and Rome, designed by an unknown architect and completed about 315 AD. The sim similarity to an arched hood dial with colonnettes is apparent. Indeed, 
virtually all of our terminology relating to the description of clock and other case furniture, pieces, acanthus, arch, capital, cavetto, column, cornice, cyma, dental, fluting, frieze, pediment, pilaster, plinth, tympanum, and so forth, derive from the classical period. There are, of course, distinctions to be made between Greek, Roman, and Roman architecture derived from the Greek, but all of these architectural elements are found throughout this period. Thus, we can see the origins of arch doors, fluted colonnettes, and various hood treatments employed on all tall case clocks in the surviving buildings of the classical period. The other architectural period that influenced certain aspects of clock case design is the Gothic. This is for a good reason, since mechanical clocks were invented during the late Gothic period. Mechanical clocks, as we recognize them today, were probably invented, at least in the West, in the early 14th century, as evidenced by surviving documentation in Italy and England. By the early 15th century, the highest concentration of clockmakers in Europe was in southern Germany and in Austria, as can be deduced from the large number of surviving examples. For the most part of their efforts were driven by the needs of the church. The clocks of the day, the large tower clocks, were beyond the reach of all but the wealthiest private citizen. Techniques developed that shrank the size of the movement, and therefore clockmakers' wares invariably took the form of table clocks, with spring balance and verge escapement mechanisms. Eventually, further advances in clockmaking and, great, <coughs> and greatly increased per capita wealth fostered an even more viable industry in the Low Countries, particularly in The Hague and in Amsterdam, where the movements were, by and large, placed vertically, resulting in the elegant Hague clock, and with Huygens' advance, weight-driven pendulum and wall clocks made their appearance there. The architecture of the time had a profound influence on the case design. Italy was seemingly untouched by Gothic architecture, moving from the most part directly from the Romanesque to the Renaissance style. During the 13th and 14th centuries, the farther north in Europe one traveled, the more prevalent Gothic architecture became. As a result, in Germanic areas, the Gothic influence was reflected in the numerals, arches, and finial spires of clocks. Elements unique to the Gothic period, such as spandrels and spires, were blended with the classical design elements to complete the overall design of the clock case. Here one sees, for the first time, the now iconic three-spire finials, so common on cathedrals of the day. The cathedral, from the very first, was looked upon as a sanctuary and threshold to heaven. The 12th century philosopher Thierry of Chartres sought to explain the mystery of the Trinity by geometrical representation. John of Graco of 1280 explains the preeminence of musical and geometric triple consonances by making and invoking the Trinity. This time framework coincided with the development of Gothic architecture, originally French but soon adopted in England and interpreted in such structures as Salisbury Cathedral, 
began the end of the early English period of 1180 through 1275, and completed by the middle of the decorated period 1275 to 1380. Design concepts such as spires and arches were further refined during the perpendicular period 1380 through 1520. Uniquely English in producing the profoundness and the most exuberant of these concepts. It is not a huge leap to look upon the heavenward soaring triple spires of the cathedrals as representing the Trinity. So let's talk about a German clock around 1500 with just quite this kind of reputation. Further, the vert verticality so much in evidence during that perpendicular period quite likely influenced the design of clock cases much taller than eye level or pendulum length would dictate. Gothic forms continued to influence the clockmakers of the Low Countries and remained in vogue well after the style had been supplanted by architecture in the Renaissance style. Perhaps because of the Clockmakers Guild, resistance to change, at any rate, and now neo-Gothic elements became ingrained in the clockmaker's case-designed vocabulary. The vast concentration of trading wealth in the Low Countries during the 17th century attracted clockmakers from all over Europe, and that resulted competition drove progress in movement design. It was here that the pendulum was first successfully applied to regulation of the escapement. Clockmakers emigrated from England to The Hague with similar centers to learn the new techniques that were happening, which they utilized back home. Why Solomon Coster is known as the builder of the first pendulum clock, Adherius Framantil and his son were also known initially propagating pendulum technology in England within a year of its invention. They were not alone for long. English casemakers, almost influenced by the Gothic church architecture of the perpendicular style, incorporated neo-Gothic design elements in their cases. The English Clockmakers Guild, chartered under Charles I in 1631, ensured some economic protection for members, but also ensured that any stylistic changes were rigorously resisted. Thus, Renaissance design elements were largely absent and the neo-Gothic sarcophagus, triple spile finials, and general verticality became essential characteristics of the early tall case clocks. These began to appear not long after Huygens' success. Extant English examples have been dated to 1670 a scant four years after the monumental advance in clock accuracy, which made clocks accurate to within a minute or two a week rather than the previous five or ten minutes per day. From the surviving examples, it can be said that English tall case clocks maintain these neo-Gothic design elements for a considerable period, while by the 1840s, Dutch clocks had evolved somewhat differently and changes such as Bombay bases, figural finials, and other differentiating characteristics became quite commonplace. As we have noted, the English guild system discouraged innovation and changes, if any, were glacial in their implementation, and design elements remained quite static for very long periods of time. When the first clockmakers immigrated to the Philadelphia 
from the English colonies, primarily to Philadelphia and Boston, they brought with them not only the existing mechanics of clock movements and clock case architecture, but also a habitual resistance to change. There were, of course, regional differences, and the guild system per say did not exist in the colonies, but many characteristics of the guild, such as apprenticeships, meant that design changes would be quite slow in coming. English-style clocks still set the pace, and all colonial makers after a time allowed some local influences to be felt. Design elements persisted for an extraordinarily long periods of time. The arch style gradually supplanted the square dial over more than a 30-year period. Colonnettes, whether engaged or freestanding, fluted or not, were employed nearly universally from the very earliest days, right through the painted dial era and beyond. The tripartite finial arrangement with elevated center finial was the de régulateur for a similar period with only a few exceptions. Later in the century, under the Chippendale Rococo design influences, center finial slowly gave way to a more ornate clocks, to figural or floral elements or highly elaborate carved cartouches, um, you know, both of clocks by Beard and Waddy and Wood, just others, a few others to name a few. So by and large, however, the side finials survived, even if all three didn't survive at one time. So in the, in the colonies, the apprenticeship system continued often with differences between terms of slaveholding and those of indenturing an apprentice were not great. Witness this in 1738 newspaper advertisement placed by Peter Stretch of Philadelphia. So on the first of this uh, infant, Peter Stretch clockmaker, Philadelphia, a young man seeking a young man for an apprentice. Um, I found him. His name was William Cannon of a middle uh, nature. He's short brown hair, having on a blue-gray suit of broadcloth. Any person that brings him into his master shall be rewarded. So here we have a um, people that were trying to escape apprenticeships because you had some some masters that were really over the edge. Um, so just interesting. So he put this in one of the Philadelphia papers at the time, Peter Stretch. Records are not as numerous relating to cabinet makers, but it seems most likely that the apprenticeship period was similar to that of the clockmaker. While they, the arrangement was less formal, that required by the English guild system, there was nonetheless an extended training period required by the young apprentice, often but not always in exchange for room and board. Apprentice clockmakers served between two and seven years according to the informal informalities taken in Philadelphia just before the Revolutionary War. Such extensive training begun at an early age in both instances, ensuring that construction techniques whether for the movement of the case, persisted over time as standardization. Thus, apprenticeships further strengthen an already strong resistance to innovation in architectural elements. Hope everyone enjoyed this. Greg Perry, the Historic Preservationist, signing off. Thanks for listening.